Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, coming at you from America's heartland, Dr. Santosh Nadipuram, your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. In the heartland, <laughs> you're working hard. <laughs> For the weekend, no, that's the wrong song. Right in your backyard. I don't even remember what that's advertising. No, Probably a it truck. Was, it had to be, it, it's either a truck or beer. There's not much more. <laughs> it's not truck, it's beer. Maybe it's a beer truck. <laughs> it could be the beer truck. Char- uh, listen, Josh, we're not going to do this, okay? Beer is carried on a special carriage pulled by Clydesdales. <laughs> well, in the heartland, maybe. <laughs> in the heartland. Okay. All right, we have to do an episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, first and foremost, let me apologize for the last couple episodes, I am well aware of the sound issues, and if anybody can recommend to me a good recording software to use, I would be in your debt. Yeah. Because I'm becoming a much better sound editor, but I am working with terrible equipment. <laughs> and and Dr. Josh really has uh, searched high and low and done an amazing job. But yeah, I think we're... We're looking for something that's just reliable at this point. <laughs> just something that's not going to crash every time. <laughs> it's such a low bar. Yeah. It's such a low bar to pass, and I have yet to find recording software that can manage it. <laughs> so, All right. But, but moving on, once again, it is time for our bi-monthly roundup of all the medical news fit to print, in everybody's favorite segment, Journal Club. Well, bi monthly. Oh, yeah, it goes both ways. Wait. <laughs> so from the doctor to the no, patient and no, the patient just... to the doctor. That. What? No, like from no. the bench to the bedside or bedside to the bench. Like translational research, it goes both ways. Can we move on? <laughs> <laughs> Santosh. In what I think is going to be a record for one of my best segues ever. Yeah. You're out in the heartland right now, right? I am. There's so many fields. What does your hometown smell like? <laughs> well, after uh, a beautiful rain and, you know, the smell of, of soil and it's, it's, it's manure. There's so much manure. We use manure for everything. There's so much manure. Interesting. interesting. <laughs> Chicago itself has a, a unique aroma of what I could only describe as 
Dirty River, okay. combined with a hint of exhaust, pizza, and gun smoke. Oh, uh, yeah, that would that encompasses it all. The pizza doesn't stand alone, though. I would say like various fried foods. But through them all, you just you know which pizza branch is in your particular neighborhood because you walk in and you smell it. You know which are the which are the Giordano's neighborhoods, which are the Luminati's neighborhoods, and never the Twain shall meet. Yes, yes, it's very it's a very personal thing. And for all of you who said, "What about Uno?" You shut your mouths. <laughs> that is that is dirty tourist pizza. <laughs> That's not true. Uno's is... Uh, so what do other cities smell like? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. It turns out that lots of cities have their own unique smell. I believe London was described as smelling of fried foods and catfish. All right. And yeah, yeah. Fish and chips, sure. Yep, yep, fish and chips. And then we have Paris, smells of coffee and onions, coffee. and probably disappointed love. Uh, <laughs> or unrequited. Moscow. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go with unrequited. <laughs> Moscow, smells of cheap eau de cologne and sweat, <laughs> which I can verify that one. Right. It also smells of tracksuits. Of tracksuits. <laughs> of tracksuits. <laughs> As does Glendale. Oh, and, well, I'm going to pay for that later. <laughs> and Berlin smells of cigars and boiled cabbage. Well, at least it did. <laughs> and this was noted back in the 60s by well-known British author Ian Fleming, who described the smells of all these cities in his 1963 travelogue, Thrilling Cities. Well, more than five decades after the creator of James Bond took his nose for a trip around the world, yeah, yeah, there is an artist based in Berlin who is creating smellscapes of different cities. Oh wow! So putting together the scents of a particular town, packaging that up, and uh, making it available. Yeah, she's getting a sense of scents. Uh, <laughs> she's putting in her two scents. Cicel Tolas, a half-Norwegian, half-Icelandic artist with a background in chemistry, linguistics, mathematics, and visual arts, so a very smart lady, yeah. is putting in more than just her two cents. She is creating smell escapes of multiple different cities, depending on things like climate, geography, demography, and you'll notice uh, that... She says, cities like Berlin's Newcomb neighborhood smells quite different from Charlottesburg, West Virginia, when it comes to smell. Oh, sure. And that would make a lot of sense. Uh, not only the, ha, huh, sense. <laughs> this is the pun that keeps on giving. But, yeah, you, you talk about local environment, you know, mountain versus seashore versus... You know, the the type of garbage you throw away, the type of food you eat. Sure, absolutely. So she's been working in the medium of smell for over 20 years. Can you imagine devoting 20 years of your life to smelling things? <laughs> that is a long time. But I guess if this is a bit of a newer art, you know, maybe this will become a, a normal thing in the near future, the same way that someone would dedicate... 20 years of their lives learning the art of acrylic paint. Well, she has managed in her 20 years to amass a personal smell library of over 6,500 odors caught in airtight cans. Oh, this is what I imagine being dog nirvana. Wow. Oh, yeah. Or maybe overload. <laughs> Just, <laughs> ah, boom. <laughs> Blue screen. Yeah. Pardon me, I'd like to check out Cinnabon and Feces. <laughs> That's a pretty good combo for a pup. Well, she actually takes these these smells and she does things with them. So one example is she made Limburger cheese from bacteria found in David Beckham's shoes <laughs> and then served that cheese and then served that cheese to people at the London Olympics. No. Uh, she also she also recreated the smell of the First World War for the German Military History Museum in Dresden. But her latest project has her traveling around the world and mapping its cities one smell at a time, and it's called Smellscapes, and she has been to 35 cities so far. 
Interestingly, there are actual real applications beyond just her sniffing around, stopping to smell the roses and the laundry and the local ethnic eateries. Okay. Her smellscape of Mexico City mm-hmm. was developed in 2001, helped the city understand pollution and actually changed some of its ecological laws. Because back then, Mexico City is a city that's high up in a valley surrounded by mountains, flanked by two volcanoes with a lot of car traffic. So by mapping the smell, she was able to help the government determine where higher zones of pollution were and what laws could be enacted in those neighborhoods to decrease the pollution and restore the natural smells of Mexico City. Insert your joke of choice here. (laughs) I, I, I can see this becoming very very racially insensitive in a short time so maybe we should move on but it is wonderful anytime art is able to impact uh policy public policy in such a wonderful way because i think this is a goal of a lot of artists whether it's a visual medium or an audio medium or in this case a sensory medium to actually change the hearts and minds of people and stir them into action. So, and it does make uh, a good amount of uh, sense, again. Um, the receptors for scent and smell are right there in our nose, and those neurons carry signals that go right past the part of our brain which gives us the feelies, our amygdala and our, our little, you know, lizard brain in there, and Um, all of the parts of our brain which are primarily responsible for some of our most basic emotions. So this is why you smell, oh, wonderful chocolate chip cookies, and you think of grandma's house, or you smell something terrible, and it immediately... Or you smell mothballs and think of grandma. Oh, grandma herself, of course, yeah. (laughs) So you can evoke a lot of emotion from smell, even more so than from a visual medium. Now, she's currently working in Singapore, so lest you think this project is going to devolve straight into racist ethnic jokes, she actually walks around, and the original goal was to help reproduce the smell of pollution, car exhaust, refrigerator, air conditioner. Then she gave the smells to people and asked them to articulate what they were smelling, which made them understand better what's causing the pollution and be more likely to take action against it. And imagine an Australian... Or a, a Norwegian woman who looks a lot like the Australian singer Sia, that blonde hair that sort of covers her eyes, yeah. walking up to you with an airtight container going, hey, hey, smell this. Smell this. <laughs> uh, and, and but you might wonder, how does she get those smells that she runs up and, and oh, cracks open on people? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, I mean, you can only have so many airtight cans. Right? Yeah. And, you know, if you want to open up a can of literal whoop-ass <laughs> on somebody, how how does one collect it? Sure, absolutely. Well, she uses a specialized bit of technology that does in fact exist called a smell camera. Nice. And it was originally developed actually for perfumers who needed to recreate a scent for a specific fragrance, and this may happen because the natural flower is too rare to be successfully harvested, or its aroma is too unstable to use in a formula. So it runs the chemical structure through a gas chromatograph, which is a device that will help tell you how the smell is built and arranged in terms of its molecules, and then she is able to reproduce that in a lab with a whole bunch of other chemicals she has. So this very same technology may one day give us the ability to learn what Mars smells like. The rover sends back samples of soil. The scientists run these samples through, and you get Cologne Eau de Mars. Beautiful. Yeah. This is not sci-fi, guys. You can actually take the molecules, the volatile molecules, in any given substance, and you can make a little smell fingerprint. And as a small tangent, you can also do this with taste, because we do know a lot of the molecules which trigger our taste buds. So you can make a molecular taste fingerprint in the same way. It's pretty cool. And smells can reinforce and reflect the identity of cities. So she's really capturing our heritage. And if you don't think that it can recreate the scent of a city, 
Think about your childhood, what you really can remember, and it'll be, I'm guessing, something like the smell of baking bread or your mother's perfume or somebody who grew up in, say, Nairobi, Kenya, is going to have a very different smell memory than somebody who grew up in Guadalajara, Mexico. Right, and it interestingly, just like I was saying before with uh, how you how you feel about those smells... A uh, the smell of something that you find very pleasing and that reminds you of good times might actually trigger some very bad memories in somebody else, but the emotions will be just as intense. So that's that's also a neat kind of twist on that. So those of you walking up to your friends being like, hey, hey, smell this. You could be doing important scientific research. Congratulations. Welcome to the community, people. <laughs> so let's move on to our actual journal club topic for today, which is viruses and bacteria. All our journal stories are going to deal with new advances and things we've learned about our tiniest life forms or pseudo life forms. <laughs> it depends on who you talk to. I personally think that it falls into the category of living but there are researchers and scientists who are much more brilliant than I who would say, Santo should be crazy. Uh, they probably wouldn't say it that way, but oh, maybe they would. I don't know. We could. We could. <laughs> Santos, you be crazy. <laughs> See? People much smarter than I call me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured the best one to start with is also the most horrifying Okay. So, two things that lots of people are worried about. One are viruses. Mm -hmm. The second, spiders. <laughs> uh, we we will yeah we'll put germophobia and arachnophobia in this one. Um, I think we'll try to stay away from uh, clown phobia in this particular. Oh, one. do not even get me started. <laughs> It'd be it'd be bad if we got if we combined like germophobia, arachnophobia, and fear of clouds. Which is called coulrophobia, for those of you wondering. <laughs> know thine enemy. <laughs> right. Well, in what can only be described as a horrifying twist of fate, at least to me, they have learned, and by they I mean scientists, and by scientists I mean a married couple who was bored and just learned about this by accident. <laughs> this is what we do, people. A married scientist couple has discovered that somewhere out in the world, viruses are stealing spider DNA. <laughs> and uh, it shouldn't be <laughs> it shouldn't be an enormous surprise to anybody I don't think it is oh yeah I absolutely think that <laughs> viruses walk around stealing spider DNA I, I take it back it shouldn't be of an enormous surprise to anybody in the fields of infection and genetics but it's definitely just a bit shocking the the truth is our DNA is constantly kind of intertwining with the other organisms in nature. And viruses are a little specialized for this. Um, they, you can say they've evolved to integrate themselves into other creatures' DNA. And as they bud off, or, you know, they, they come out of the chromosomal DNA of a slightly larger creature, whether it's a bacteria or it's another human cell, they sometimes carry some information with them from the host. So that cleavage of DNA, which is supposed to be all viral DNA, sometimes contains more than just the viral DNA. And, you know, you can imagine, you know, giving a big hug to your best friend, and maybe you guys were, you know, came in out of the cold on a winter's day, and then, you know, maybe he's got, uh, you know, a mitten Velcroed to his coat, and you got some Velcro on on your you know somewhere on your coat and you catch a mitten so in this particular one the the virus we're talking about is actually less impressive than what has infected the virus which is a bacteria known as wolbachia which sounds a little bit like halibachia 
And I, I love this little guy. They are what you call commensal vi- uh, bacteria, sorry, for a lot of insects. And we've covered this a couple of times when we were talking about programming mosquitoes that carry bad diseases, programming them to die by actually messing with the bacteria that live with them. And one of the bacteria you can mess with is Wolbachia. Oh, the back edge. <laughs> so if you look inside these bacteria, you'll usually find a virus called WO, W-O, <laughs> lying in wait within its DNA. And if you look at WO very carefully, as these married scientists have done, you find little parts of genes in the virus that look like they come from animals. What animal? Well, a black widow spider, specifically a venom from the black widow spider. So the question is, if you're looking in a bacteria that is nowhere near a spider and you are seeing genes for spider venom... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you've extracted the bacteria from your host insect and all of a sudden you notice, hey... This isn't all bacterial DNA. I'm, you know, in my genetic sequence, I'm finding bacteria that came from the insect host. Or, sorry, the genes that came from the insect host. Exactly. So these, these Wolbachia bacteria are found in almost every insect. It's like the common cold. It's like the common cold for insects. It is a master at infecting spiders, wood lice, any and all arthropods. They manipulate the sex lives of their hosts, turning males into females or killing them outright to make others available. Sometimes it gives benefits like resistance to viruses. This is good because Wolbachia's presence can actually prevent mosquitoes from being able to spread things like dengue, Zika, yellow fever, and others. But this Wolbachia itself can get infected. So now you're getting an infection of an infection. (laughs) And by the way, guys, you can get an infection within an infection within an infection, but that's for a different story. That's what we call an infection inception. (laughs) This... This little phage, this this virus, which is infecting the bacteria, which is infecting, well, not really infecting, but living within the, the, the spider, is the Leonardo DiCaprio of infection. Before we go any further into this story, Santosh, why don't you tell us, for, for those who don't know, what is a bacteriophage, and how does phage therapy work? Yeah, so a phage, uh, phage comes from the Greek... And I'm sure I'm not pronouncing the Greek properly, but it means to eat or to consume or to chew. And so a phage was so called because when you add viruses, phage viruses, to a plate of bacteria and you look at it under a microscope, the phages actually enter the bacteria cells, the little prokaryotic cells, and then they burst them. They... they they literally look like they're going in and consuming the bacteria from the inside out. So these are viruses which have co-evolved with bacteria, and they get their reproduction by hijacking the bacteria's mechanism for, for DNA replication, and they replicate themselves, and then they burst out. So... Just like a lot of bacteria are our enemies and kill us from the inside out, these phages are the enemies of the bacteria. Now, interestingly, we here over in the Western world, meaning America, tend to use antibiotics to treat infections. But over in Mother Russia, they use phages. Yeah, and, you know, if you, it's a little bit difficult because some phages can be quite particular. You know, they've come about by coevolution over a long time, right? So some phages are quite particular to the types of bacteria that they will invade. And so once you know the bacteria that you're dealing with, you can grow a whole bunch of phage virus in your laboratory, and you can, believe it or not, inject it into a human being. The bacteriophages will go in, infect and kill all of the offending bacteria, and they will pretty much leave the human cells alone because they're not well evolved to actually destroy human cells. So 
you have to give the therapy over a decent period of time. And because these are living organisms, the viruses are living organisms, and so are the bacteria, you can get resistance over time because the bacteria will figure out ways to get resistant to the phages, and the phages will try to overcome that resistance mechanism and back and forth. But Now, this is just the same as antibiotics. And the nice thing about phages is you can use a smaller effective dose with very few side effects. However, a phage will only kill a bacteria if it's a match to the specific strain right. of bacteria. And that's really the problem that we have is you can give an antibiotic and because it's so-called broadly acting, you may get some side effects because it's killing, you know, quote-unquote good bacteria, but you know or you're, you're fairly certain that it's going to go kill... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Your bad bacteria as well. And you can give it without knowing the exact identity of the bacteria that you're trying to kill ahead of time. So where do you get these phages that are used to treat bacteria? Well, again, you think phages a lot of this grow data... on trees? No, they grow in petri dishes. What are you talking about? A lot, a lot of the data on phages has been collected from Russia, where again, it's used as part of just their regular medicine. Just like we give bacteria, Russian doctors use phages. This is a difference between us that has arisen from the Cold War. We went one option with treating; they went another. So the simplest method is. In order to get a variety of phages to treat bacteria, you have to collect local samples likely to contain high qualities of bacteria, such as sewage or corpses, yeah. two things that apparently Russia had a lot of back in the day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you are trying to find infectious particles which are going to kill and kill bacteria. So you've got to go to where those bacteria live. The real question is, how do these phages get in and around? So now we go back to our Wolbachia, the ones that we were studying. Woe, which is the phage, lives in Wolbachia, but interestingly, it can get through not just the bacterial cell, but it can get into other creatures, meaning it has to punch through not only a bacterial cell, but an animal cell. Once it's out, in order to find a new host, it has to punch its way into another insect and another bacteria. So that's four walls that this phage needs to go through. It is brute forcing. It is incredible hulking its way through. And the reason, the reason it's able to do this is when this married scientist couple started examining the genome, they found it contained the gene for iatrotoxin, the chemical in black widow spider venom that punches through the holes of the cells of its victims that cause their innards to leak outwards. Yeah. That's what makes it so dangerous. Now, this is what the black, So this is what the black widow uses to digest its prey so that it can just eat it in liquefied form. Right. Yeah. Now, it's possible that the spiders got the iatrotoxin gene from the virus or that the two evolved their copies independently. Sure. But by comparing the versions of it, it looks like the virus basically stole this toxin from the spider. It had the opportunity, since Wolbachia does infect insects, and the spider, yes, arachnids are technically different from insects, but they're in the same general family, <laughs> and it does infect black widows. So the phage picked up spider DNA from the creature's own cells. So here's why this is imp important. All living things tend to fall into three major domains. The bacteria, which are microbes we know, the archaea, which are 
ancient microbes that live in extreme climates, and the eukaryotes, which includes every other animal and many-celled creature. Uh, for viruses, in order to get into an archaea, a bacteria, or a eukaryote, it's very specialized. It's like Hogwarts houses. You have your own, there's no crossover. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the reason for that is if you were too generalized as a virus, think about early evolution, if you were too generalized and you were trying to get into every damn thing, then probably you would be outcompeted by viruses which had evolved specialized mechanisms to just go after a very particular bacteria. So you'd basically try to eat everything and end up eating nothing, and your species would die off. Somehow, these phages have managed to steal DNA from spiders that allows them to escape their host. Not just the cell, but the actual animal, insect, that was hosting it and get into a new one. Now, the phage itself doesn't do anything to harm us, right? It only attacks the bacteria in the host. Right. Manipulation of some of these genes could help lead to other treatments later on. And of course, the obvious targets are things like cancer or HIV or any sort of specialized bacteria that or virus that we can treat a phage to target. Bacteria are going to be the first obvious targets, but if we can learn what these phages do to infect them, we can expand that treatment out to a whole host of things, all from the nightmare story of viruses stealing from spiders. <laughs> uh, so... Hopefully, this entire story like this will have a happy ending. Which is how you want a nightmare to end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah with the heroes, you know, coming out, you know, and kind of wiping their brow and, ah, oh, we made it. <laughs> so that's one possible way that we have available to us to fight bacteria. Now, remember, we're going to be living, in addition to living in a post-truth world, we are also living in a superbug world. Drug resistance developing all over the place. Every time you turn on the news, some new bacteria has found a way to resist being treated with what we have available. Well, that brings us to our next story. So we can treat one possible method is with phages. But a remarkably talented young woman who is only 25, has a huge scientific career ahead of her, may have found another possible answer to antibiotic resistance. It's, it's a little bit scary to think about, but antibiotics tend to very specifically target components of bacteria that are fairly narrow in terms of spectrum. And, and not super narrow, but... You, you want to, for instance, not destroy every lipid thing in sight, you know, the lipids which make up the cell membranes and cell walls. You don't want to destroy the host along with the bacteria. You want to just go after like a bacterial cell wall or a bacterial ribosome. So this is what an antibiotic goes after. This is a fairly easy target for a bacteria to find a way to resist say, okay, well, if you're going to go after this particular part of my cell wall, well, enough of my, you know, progeny get through this, a little bit of mutation, a little bit of time, boom, you have resistance. You do have to try to find ways where you can still only target bacteria and spare the human, but make it such that the target of your molecular therapy, your antibiotic therapy, your antimicrobial therapy, can't be easily changed. And that's how you get around evolutionary resistance. You might be asking yourself, why does this matter? Well, the most common drug-resistant bacteria that we worry about, top of the list is MRSA, or methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. That's a big one. ESBL, extended-spectrum beta-lactamase-resistant urinary tract infections. And by and large, these tend to mostly occur in older people and in immunocompromised people, and we worry about them there. But what should concern you is now scientists are announcing gonorrhea is about to become resistant to all remaining drugs. <laughs> I'll pause a moment while I know a certain segment of the population gets. <laughs> and, you know, this is our fault as physicians and providers. Physicians have been giving antibiotics to people for a long time. And a lot of the time, 
you are giving antibiotics when antibiotics aren't necessary. In the case of gonorrhea, we have found that the case incidence, so you've had so many cases of gonorrhea in very particular places, it needed to be treated and cleared and treated and cleared and treated and cleared, that that gonorrhea circulated through various human populations where there was a lot of antibiotic use. And that meant that the remaining bacteria, so after every cycle of antibiotics, the one remaining guy that was resistant multiplied, and the progeny of that bacterium, that little Neisseria gonorrhea, was now resistant, and that population moved out into the environment via somebody's genitals. It is the very definition of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> yeah, in, in terms of a population, not an individual. Remember, guys, evolution happens. Well, an, an individual bacteria. Yes, an individual bacteria does not get killed. And that's why bacteria evolve Pokemon metamorphose. So unlike most antibiotics, which poison bacteria and therefore can also affect healthy snail healthy snails, healthy cells. <laughs> yeah. In this case, this new method that of fighting superbug strains that has been discovered is a star-shaped polymer that can kill right now six different superbug strains without antibiotics simply by ripping apart their cell walls. So if you imagine our last story get with the phage punching its way into a bacteria and opening it up from the inside, there's your Ant-Man analogy where this polymer is more the Incredible Hulk. It simply surrounds the bacterial cell and rips it open, <laughs> yelling, Polymer smash! <laughs> and it physically disrupts or breaks apart the cell wall of the bacteria, which creates a lot of stress on the bacteria, causes it to kill itself. Right. So you have to have an enclosed cell. A bacteria has to be an enclosed cell in order for its biological operations to keep on going. If you make that enclosure porous and molecules, atoms, water can freely go back and forth, the cell will swell or burst or shrink. And these stresses actually trigger mechanisms in the bacteria, and actually a lot of cells have these, most cells have these, that say, commit suicide. You're just wasting energy trying to survive this. You're, you're going down, you know, just hit the deck. So now, the difference is here. Now, Josh, we do have antibiotics which target the cell wall, the bacterial cell wall. The difference here is the scale on which that disruption occurs uh, it, it, it kind of disrupts so many parts of the cell wall that there's no single, you can say, amino acid, which is also called residue, encoded by the DNA. So there's no little part of DNA that the bacteria can mutate and, and survive in order to survive this assault. So, mutate this fist in your face, bacteria. <laughs> Exactly. So you, you basically don't have enough of a high and kind of vast mutation rate to counter this mode of assault is what it, 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 it ends up being. So it is a wonderful method, but there are a few caveats to this study. Yeah, Josh? Well, of course, there's caveats to every study, but I yeah. do want to point out that in what has made this young girl, Shu Lam, my scientific hero, yeah. we constantly go on and on about how scientists are absolutely terrible at naming that things. That is true. Not Shu. <laughs> <laughs> so far, so far, so young scientist Lam has created a structurally nano-engineered antimicrobial peptide polymer, which she calls SNAPS. That's it. It's a SNAP <laughs> to treat these infections. I am more impressed by that than anything else in this article because she took the time to create a good name for what could potentially be a life-changing medication. Yeah, and, and this is something that you can remember and it's easy. You know, 
way back when, when little antimicrobial molecules were discovered and, you know, the, the, the little fungus that made it was called penicillium. The, they called it penicillin and boom. And this is the same way. You have an acronym and it treats, you know, bacteria or kills bacteria in a snap. All right, let's put together S-N-A-P-P, snap. Obviously, this is still not yet ready for mass production because it still can only target six specific strains of superbugs, and there are more than six strains. And we're not talking about (laughs) gonorrhea, ESBL. It's maybe, you know, like six kinds of MRSA. Right. So there's still a lot of work to do, and... So far, we they haven't looked at survivability, meaning these snaps don't kill the host cells, but they haven't looked at long-term because it's just been done in mice, which have all been dissected at the end of the study to find out what's been done to the bacteria. So we are still a long way off from seeing this as a general treatment. But that said, it is a very interesting venue for future exploration and might be one of the answers to our post-superbug problem. Yay! Congratulations. Uh, Way to go on uh, pushing this treatment forward. And I I genuinely hope that great things happen uh, for this young lady and for this technology. Now that brings us to our final story of the Journal Club. And we have talked both about viruses that infect bacteria and two methods of treating bacteria, but we haven't talked about probably the best-known infectious virus at this point, which is HIV. Yeah. Now, we have been making a lot of headway with what we've learned about it since it was first sort of discovered in the 80s, but in one of the more exciting pieces of news this week on Facebook, or at least one of the more exciting, reliable pieces of news this week on Facebook... Scientists from the National Institute of Health have managed to identify a potent antibody that neutralizes nearly all HIV strains living in one British man. (laughs) Oh, man, it's wonderful when this happens. And this is... I know, the British are so delightful. (laughs) Well, this isn't the first time we've found a potential solution just... You know, living looking in a into host. the British. <laughs> oh, I gave you so many opportunities. Uh, All right, Santosh, take it away. So, not the first time we've found solutions living in other things. Right. So, you know, one of the potential treatments for HIV came from a, a wonderful story of, of a man called the Berlin patient, and what we found out was that. This man had gotten a bone marrow transplant, and he happened to have HIV, but he was getting a bone marrow transplant for, I believe, leukemia at the time. And the he received bone marrow from another person who had a mutation on the T cells, so the immune lymphocytes, And and that mutation was very specific to a receptor that HIV uses to get into the cell. So he said, hey, oh my gosh, you know, this guy has mutant T cells now as as a donor. And they followed his progress and followed his progress. And boom, he had no HIV detected for a very long time. I think he's still HIV free. And this was another case of hunting for a solution to HIV. We've thought of antibody therapy for a long time. Antibodies are little tiny Y-shaped molecules, and it's they're made all the time, all the time. They go and they attach to various surfaces, and when they attach to something that doesn't belong, they signal other cells to come in and destroy whatever that thing is, if it's a bacteria or a virus or whatever. The problem with HIV is it really likes to mutate. It mutates a whole lot. And so the surfaces that this antibody would like to bind to changes. It'll, it'll be fine for a while to you know stick to and say, oh yeah, I recognize this and I can wipe out all these HIV virus particles. And then, boom, all of a sudden, you know, hey, wait a minute, where did that little surface go? It's gone. True enough, you look there, And that particular surface where that antibody used to bind, it's not there anymore. So now 
the immune system has to make a brand new antibody and see if it... But this particular antibody, Josh, uh, called N6, binds to a little part of HIV, which is used by the virus to attach to the T cells. And that is a part of the virus which seems to not change very much. And so this antibody is good enough to neutralize a high percentage of viral particles, like 98%. In conjunction with VRC01, or Vaccine Research Center Compound 1, <laughs> oh, they need to hire Shu Long. <laughs> Uh, All you need, we have so much money for laboratory technicians and people who are there to help us write grants and all these kind of things. Just go in and hire someone, like, get a poet. Get a poet. Yeah, don't go to the internet because then you'll end up with Virusy McVirus face. (laughs) Please don't have Virusy McVirus face. They totally would. Due to its potency, N6 may offer stronger and more durable prevention and treatment benefits. It may eventually be able to be administered just as a shot uh, subcutaneously into the fat under the skin rather than IV. And the fact that you can neutralize nearly all HIV strains over, say, a compound of poisonous cocktails, which is what we've been using now. Although, vastly improving poisonous cocktails. (laughs) Yeah. is, Is something that holds a lot of future promise but again like any and all of the science discoveries that we often discuss on journal club this is still years away from becoming a standardly available therapy so please do not believe facebook when it tells you cure for hiv (laughs) now discovered and yes so when you make a drug for instance you make a chemical compound you can manufacture it in huge batches and it's it's much easier to do but when you're trying to make antibody, antibody you can't actually construct from scratch. You actually have to engineer a little, what's called an epitope, or the protein that the antibody would bind to. And then you have to give that little protein to something like a mouse or, or something else that can make the antibody for you when it's exposed to that antigen. So. It's a much more labor-intensive and a little more of a a dirtier process overall. So it is really not make-it-and-go type of thing. So we have to keep testing to make sure that this antibody will continue to work over the long term and that the virus won't mutate again to be resistant to this antibody. And then we got to make sure it's safe, and then we can start releasing it to the public. That concludes this week's journal club i hope you learned a lot from smells to spiders to the cure for hiv kind of kind of kind of (laughs) it is important to take a look at the studies see what has actually been accomplished before we let the media run screaming waving its hands about its head that said there is a lot of interesting stuff going on that does give us hope for the future, and I think hope for the future is something we could all use right now. Oh, definitely. Now more than ever. That's it. I'm going to include in just a moment another Just the Tip from one of our listeners who I've met on our travels. Thanks, guys. Enjoy it. Yeah. Here we go. Okay, this is Yuka. I'm from Yokohama, Japan. I was born in Kobe, which is, which is located western side of Japan. I've been to Vietnam, China, Hawaii, United States, Colombia. Um, uh, when I went to China, I was about to purchase some souvenir for my for myself. I tried to um, lessen the price. However, I set the price in Chinese higher, expensive, more expensive than expected. But, uh, I was trying to lessen the price, the lights said, but the customer didn't allow me to purchase lower price. And I said I don't purchase it. <laughs> But she didn't get me go. <laughs> she was grabbing my arm. <laughs> and the other customer came out to stop uh, the staff. <laughs> let's, 
less than the price. <laughs> uh, finally, I could purchase um, uh, less price than I expected, but it's still higher. <laughs> it's like about, it's about 300 yen for three notebooks. <laughs> and I'm glad to see you, Josh, in Japan again. Thank you very much for coming. Hope you enjoyed that. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. Yeah. <laughs> me help. <laughs> With with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.